0: The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Covenant podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective.
1: We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to scripture, and Christ exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant podcast. The Covenant podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective we're on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this discussion, we have the opportunity to speak with Andre Gazal. So welcome to the podcast, brother.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: And the topic of our conversation today is a book that uh, you have edited. The original author of the book is Thomas Patient. And... Uh, The title of the book is The Doctrine of Baptism. So that's the title of our episode today, uh, The Doctrine of Baptism by Thomas Patient with Andre Gazal. But uh, brother, before we begin to talk about this book that you have edited, uh, again, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you and uh, glad to have this conversation on this particular Baptist with you. But since you are a uh, first time guest to our show, can you tell our audience just a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, let's see. Uh, Very, well, very briefly, I uh, hold degrees from Asbury College, an undergraduate degree in history, uh, a master's uh, degree with a concentration in historical theology from Reformed Theological Seminary, and a PhD in historical theology from uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in uh, Deerfield, Illinois. Uh, In most of my... Uh, most of my ministry has been in an educational context. I taught uh, in a I taught in a Christian school, specifically high school where I taught history for about uh, nine years. Uh, and then after that, I then worked on my doctorate and then um, I was involved uh, in teaching and administrating at a Bible college in the North Pacific. Uh, then uh, that was followed by... Uh, teaching in the graduate school of um, in the areas of theology, mainly historical and systematic theology at Northland International University in Dunbar, Wisconsin. And, uh, And three years ago, I accepted the call to come here to Montana Bible College, where I serve as a vice president of academic affairs and a professor of church history.
0: Excellent. Well, I've always wanted to go to Montana. I bet the uh, the weather is great around this time of year. I'm in Southeast Texas where it's a triple digit heat index on a, <laughs> on a daily basis from about mid-May till about mid-September, um, late September. So, Andre, we're so delighted to have you. Appreciate the um, insight as to what the Lord has done in and through you academically and in your ministry endeavors. Now that we're going to transition into our discussion on our, our book of uh, to- our topic of discussion today with regarding your book. Um, I just want to let you know, personally, I've really enjoyed reading it It has begun to make some significant traction in the social media world amongst the particular Baptist crowd. And I think to our listeners who are not familiar with this book, they would do well to check it out and, hmm. um, and they, they'd be tremendously blessed by recovering Um, this great work from church history. I was wondering, Andre, though, um, just to kind of get our conversation started on this direction. Would you be willing to share a little bit about what goes into the republication process uh, regarding a book of this nature? Um, Maybe a little bit about your experience with H&E Publishing and uh, just in general, what it looks like to edit a work that was originally written over 300 years ago.
2: Hmm. That's a great question. Dewey, thanks very much. Um, well, on the one hand, uh, undertaking a project like this is not for the faint-hearted. Uh, it requires uh, it requires God's grace first and foremost. Uh, God uh, God's grace, specifically in enhancing uh, our capacity for patience and perseverance. Um, but in that respect, the editing process involves. First of all, uh, making one's way through um, a, uh, you know, a 17th century work that, was, uh, that would have been printed, in this case, uh, in 1654. Um, and in any work w- written during this period, um, you're having to deal with a number of issues. Uh, for one thing, you have to deal with some of the idiosyncrasies of printing. Uh, sometimes uh, 17th century printing is a pretty hit and miss, so sometimes you have to be aware for little little details, such as a um, discrepancy discrepancies in punctuation. Sometimes um, maybe the printer didn't quite get a word uh, completely right. Um, so there are those kinds of there are those kinds of little idiosyncrasies you have to deal with. Uh, sometimes uh sort of uh, archaic vocabulary and so the first thing i would the first thing i would uh, begin with here is well how do you access a work like this in the first place uh, do you go i mean it used to be years ago if you had to do if you're going to do something like this you would travel in this case uh, to the uk uh, you would get various permissions to access various rare book rooms and there, you'd have to really economize your time carefully to um, you know, to make your way through this kind of uh, through this kind of a work. Nowadays, by God's grace, uh, the task has been somewhat simplified by uh, by all kinds of um, uh, media, like in this case, uh, early English books online, uh, which you can access through a membership in the uh, uh, Renaissance Society of America. If you join that, uh, then one of the perks uh, for membership in the Renaissance Society of America is uh, a subscription to Early English Books Online. And the neat thing about Early English Books Online is that it pub- it 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 has available by way of uh, of, uh, of of PDF files, which you can access and download. Uh, every single book that had been uh, printed in England since the invention of the printing press uh, from that you know from that time in the 15th century or so to about oh to about the 18th century and then there's a whole other then there's a whole other series um, after that but as far as early English books online is concerned uh, that you have this veritable treasure trove of all these di- of all these different uh, printed works, which you can access, and that is how I was able initially to uh, access uh, this work by patient. So you have the work you have. So you have the actual seventeenth uh, century text, and then what you and so there. So you have to do two things, unless now unless you have the f- sophisticated uh, software to do it all within the PDF. Uh, most of the time you end up transcribing the whole text. First of all, on, in my case, I transcribed it on a uh, word for word on a word document. Uh, and in so doing, you have to do, you're trying to do a couple things because what, what you're t- wanting to do here is you're wanting to, you're doing this for a certain audience. You're doing this for a, you know, for a general audience, for a general audience in this case, who are, who are members of ba- who are members of baptist churches who may be wanting to uh inquire further into various aspects of baptist heritage and therefore you want to make you're trying to re- you're trying to um revive uh awareness of this text and in order to do that you want you want to make the text as accessible to that audience as possible and at the same time, you want to retain the original of that text as much as possible. Now, and, and there's a balancing act in that regard. Uh, for one thing, you modernize you you modernize the spelling. The seventeenth uh, uh, in the seventeenth century, the um, rules for spelling and grammar were not necessarily uniform. So therefore, what we need to do is we need to uh, conform the, some of the odd seventeenth-century spelling to uh, present-day uh, conventions in English. Uh, another thing that one does is when you come across ar- certain archaic words, uh, depending on the archaic word, you try to do one of two things: either you try in the text, either in the text, you you come up with a you come up with a modern equivalent and And for me personally, that's the less desirable option because what you want to do is you want to retain as much of the original as possible. Alternatively, what you could do is, and this is what I did in this particular work most of the time, if there was an archaic word of some kind, then I just simply provide a definition of that in a footnote. And that was another that was another uh, feature of this work, is that uh, there were uh, we were very careful to footnote various references and allusions uh that patient would make to a number of things like uh the book of like the book of common prayer with which he would have been familiar because he was raised in the church of england until he became a congregationalist and then um and then sometime i mean or or an independent i should say i'm getting don't want to sound too anachronistic here but um but he was an independent and then uh, and then, and then uh, it was as an independent, uh, he, became, he adopted Baptist convictions. But nevertheless, before that, he, having been born in 1591, he would have been raised uh, in the Church of England. He would have been familiar with the Book of Common Prayer. So when he makes reference to that, um, then I would have provided uh, an explanatory footnote for some aspect of that. And also other such references that he would make. So that was a, so that was also an important thing that we tried to do. And we also tried to distinguish between uh, various um, uh, marginal references he would make himself, like to a scripture passage or, or something like that, which we would then put in which we would put in footnotes. and then we would just leave those in the footnotes as they are. And then if there was an additional comment on my part, uh, I would try to put, I would try to uh, insert those in brackets so the reader would be able to distinguish between uh, patient's own uh, notes in this case and my own comments. So it, it is a pain, it is a, it, it's a, it's a painstaking process and one that uh, requires dedication. I would say that uh, is also one that uh, requires a calling. You have to be called to do something like that, just given the uh, significant commitment that it requires so just to recap um, you read through the, you read through the work you then uh, transcribe the work onto a word document um, kind of um, re um, recreating the text if you would by uh, by placing it uh, there by means of modern uh, conventions of modern english spelling and so forth um making uh necessary explanatory footnotes throughout so the reader will be able to track uh with the author himself and then uh and then it's also very helpful to write an introduction to the author his context his background uh the work itself the circumstances under which it was written its main argument, and so forth, so that the reader is then able to situate the work in that author's particular context. the 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 object here is is to bring the author himself from his world, in this case, out of the seventeenth century, uh, to the early 22nd, to the early twenty first century reader and doing so in a way that his voice, his original voice is maintained as much as possible, but at the same time, efforts are made to make that voice plain and accessible to the present day reader.
1: Yeah. Thank you. That was uh, really helpful. Uh, I would imagine that some of our uh, listeners to our show Uh, not only have an interest in the particular Baptists of the 17th century, or maybe even Thomas Patient in particular, but uh, are um, aspiring Baptist historians, or maybe would one day want to become a Baptist historian. So uh, walking through uh, this re-editing process has been helpful for ways that potentially other listeners in the future could help recover some other Baptistic works. But uh, transitioning our uh, conversation a little bit and following up with something that you alluded to in your last answer, you did mention that you wrote an introduction. And one thing that we wanted to uh, know more about for this conversation was who was Thomas Patient? Um, we do think that maybe by giving a little bit of a biographical sketch, it might whet our listeners appetite, <clears throat> excuse me, to, uh, to learn more about this work. In particular, and this particular Baptist. So, can you uh, tell us who Thomas Patient was?
2: Certainly, certainly. Well, Thomas Patient uh, was a was a prominent leader of the uh, Baptist movement in Ireland uh, during the period of uh, the um, uh, protectorship under Oliver Cromwell during the period of the. Uh, of the Commonwealth following uh, the English civil war. Um, And so that is, and so patient was a, um, was a, was a prominent leader in establishing the, the Baptist movement uh, there in Ireland during that period. Now I alluded to something a little earlier about his life. Uh, He was born in, he was born in Devonshire uh, to a, uh, to a, church, to a Church of England family uh, by this time in 1591, uh, the majority of, uh, of uh, the English would have been, um, would have been part of the Church of England. Uh, and as a matter of course, as with anybody who would have been raised in the Church of England at this time, in the late 16th century, uh, he was, you know, he was baptized as an infant and, um, and so forth. Uh, we, the interesting thing is um, we don't know a whole lot about his early life. Just about all that we have concerning his early life comes from a uh, patient's own introductory preface uh, to, the, uh, to the doctrine of baptism, where he, get, where he goes into something of a, uh, a biographical sketch about himself. So, from what we understand, he um, he went to um, he went to a Winchester col he went to a Winchester College, which which in that context would have been um, equivalent to a secondary what we would regard today as a secondary uh, school. We don't know we don't know for sure whether he went to university or not. Uh, it seems that he might. It is very likely that he might have, and if he did, at most. Likely would have been Cambridge, but we, but he doesn't tell us that. So as I said, there's, there's, as far as his early life is concerned, there's a, a lot more that we don't know than there is that we do know, other than what he's related to us himself. Um, Well, sometime while he was in England uh, during this period, he uh, became he, he. Like, like many uh, during the, um, you know, during the uh, first uh, first part of the 16th, I mean 17th century. Um, he abandoned, um, he abandoned um, some of the uh, doctrines and practices of the Church of England in favor of independency. So he became something, he became, uh, he became something of an independent, um, which was one of the types of Puritans that we had, uh, probably the most famous of Independents in the 17th century was John Owen. Uh, so he, so he became, so he became an independent from his own testimony. And then in, and then in, um, you know, 16, 16, uh, you know, 1628, 1629, he then traveled over to, uh, Massachusetts with the Puritans on the uh, on the Arabella, uh, on which uh, where John Winthrop, uh, the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, gave his uh, famous, you know, he gave his famous address, a model of Christian charity. So patient, so patient, uh, was among those orig- was among those Puritans who had traveled over to um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And while he was in, while he was in Massachusetts, um, he, as he was listening to, as he was listening to various uh, Puritan sermons, uh, he started developing questions about the validity of baptism. And by his own account, he read scripture very uh, closely and carefully. he, he prayed, he meditated. By the way, he also goes through, in his preface to the, you know, to the reader there in his doctrine of baptism, he relates that he experienced something of an existential crisis, you know, of an existential spiritual crisis while dealing with this whole question of baptism. Well, and finally, he came to some very firm conclusions based on his reading and understanding of of Scripture, that um, that infant baptism was not biblically valid, and therefore, in his estimation, not you know, not a legitimate baptism at all. And now, the problem with this is, I mean, there's there's one thing to uh, there's one thing to draw this kind of conclusion on your own. That it's another thing to um, uh, to uh, uh, publicly advocate for that position, especially in a place like um, like Puritan Massachusetts, uh, because and uh, without going to all the details of this, uh, in in, Pur- in in Puritan Massachusetts, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, to question and you know, to question infant baptism as you know as certainly um, a more famous. Uh, a dissenter did there by the name of Roger Williams, um, as well as in, in another one by the name of John Clark. Um, this was viewed as a threat to the society, and and one question. Now, this is a theory. This is a theory that I've had, and this is a theory that I have, uh, I've, um, I have advanced for uh, for quite a long time, and that is that. Infant, and that is the, the idea that ma, what we would call magisterial Protestants, all right, and by magisterial Protestants, I mean simply um, those, I mean, particularly those reformers, Luther, Calvin, etc., whose reform programs depend upon the sympathy and support of the magistrate, um, all depended, all assumed the societal construct of Christendom. Now, by this time, it wouldn't have been Christendom in the medieval sense of of a comprehensive uh, society ruled jointly by Holy Roman Emperor and Pope, but rather here you have the notion of the Christian Commonwealth, the Christian Republic, the Christian nation. And still, infant baptism played a role in initiating somebody into the Christian society. So if you're so if you're baptized as an infant, all right, you're initiated into the church and subsequently into the Christian society. So what made somebody like Patient potentially dangerous, as would have been the case with Roger Williams, as would have been the case with John Clark, is when in that context. Given that whole paradigm of the Christian uh, commonwealth, if you start to question infant baptism, which was the, which was really the essential right, the essential initiatory right into the Christian society by way of the church, well then you undermine the whole notion of the Christian state. Therefore, the whole notion of a Christian society. Therefore, uh, you're something of a subversive. And and a a danger really to the well-being of society. So, uh, so patient. So patient when he was when he was, uh, you know, arguing for this, um, found him. I mean, uh, would have been considered that kind of an individual. So to make to make a complicated, a very complex story short, which uh, we go, which we uh, try to summarize in the uh, in the introduction of this work. Uh, patient then uh, eventually uh, leaves uh, Massachusetts Bay uh, by his own account he went to uh, he went to he went to Virginia for a while but then eventually he finds himself going back to England now at the time that he returns to England the you know the civil the the Civil War was already taking place but uh, Parliament had Parliament was uh, pretty was pretty much in charge of the country at this point, and it's in the midst of all this that uh, uh, that Oliver Cromwell, who was the commander of the New Model Army, uh, eventually beco- eventually becomes uh, the Lord you know, the Lord Protector, and so it's under his is really under his uh, tenure. Of a uh, lord, of uh, lord protector, that um, that patient, um, that patient's work, uh, especially as a Baptist, really uh, starts to take shape. Now, before he now before he goes to now before he goes to Ireland, uh, he for, he first he met the uh, acquaintance of William Kippen, and he had worked. Uh, very uh, closely and intimately with William Kiffin before this. Well, in the meantime, what's interesting about Cromwell's uh, protectorship, although even today in England, uh, it would still be regarded as somewhat controversial, and certainly the majority of um, English subjects would not necessarily be sympathetic uh, towards, um, towards his lord protectorship. But one of the distinct features of uh, Cromwell's uh, policy was uh, his attitude towards religious toleration, and so it was during his uh, protectorship that interestingly the Baptists enjoyed the greatest degree of freedom they ever had uh, up until that time, and certainly since uh, after the end of uh, Cromwell's uh, protectorship but nevertheless it was during his protectorship that the ba- that the that the baptists enjoyed considerable uh freedom to uh to pra- to to practice and to teach the faith as they understood it based on their reading of scripture uh and so um, it's interesting in this regard that uh you know, during the Civil War, there were uh, there were quite a few Baptists who were uh, who were in the New Model Army, and interestingly, uh, Baptists had uh, had very close ties uh, with the Army under under Cromwell. So uh, so eventually, um, as a matter of course, again to summarize a lot, which gets pretty uh, which could get pretty complex, uh, Parliament. Is interested in the further reform of the church in Ireland now under you know under Elizabeth and the early Stuarts uh, there is an attempt to fully establish the Church of England uh, there in Ireland probably one of the most famous leaders of the Church of England uh, in in, uh, Ireland uh, during the early 17th century was Archbishop Usher um you know, the Archbishop of, uh Archbishop of Armagh, but nevertheless, it never took, it, 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 it never really took deep effect in the country, so as a matter of, uh, as a matter of policy, Parma was very deeply interested in, in an, ev- in an in a, in a, in a robust evangelical presence, so they were, so, uh, as a matter of course, they recruited a series of, of of preachers to help to help establish that kind of a presence there in Ireland, regardless as to whether they were Independents or Baptists. And it just so happened that Thomas Patient was one of these individuals, and so uh, and so in the oh, so in the in sixteen so in the sixteen forties. Late 1640s, a uh, you know, patient goes to uh, goes to Ireland, uh, especially Dublin, and there he plays a very very significant role in helping to establish a a pretty solid Baptist community uh, there in there in Dublin, and as long and and as long as policy. Uh, was sympath- as long as policy was sympathetic towards um, you know, towards Baptists and other dissenters, uh, the the uh, the progress there would have been uh, would have increased. It would have been very successful, and the and it just so happened that when uh, Patient was doing his work there uh, in Ireland, the the Cromwellian governor of Ireland. Was very sympathetic towards Baptists, although he himself wasn't a Baptist. He himself was sympathetic towards Baptists. Well, then, but then what happened was uh, later on another another governor um, comes in who who isn't who isn't necessarily so sympathetic, and so for that reason, uh, support is withdrawn. You know, support is. Uh, is 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 withdrawn. Eventually, uh, patient returns. To, uh, patient returns to England. Now, it's interesting that towards the end of his career, uh, he is, uh, you know, he's right in the midst of the um, you know post post Cromwellian era with the Restoration and. Uh, you know, with the and with the Clarendon Code, with the Clarendon Code having been enacted, which certainly was not very sympathetic uh, to Baptists by any means, um, uh, you know, John Bunyan being something of an example, and and so, but interestingly, sometime after Patient returns to England, he joins up with William Kiffin once again. And continue and uh, works with him, and and um, laboring faithfully as a pastor, even though it's even though it's as a dissenter, even though it's technically by this time illegal, but he labors faithfully uh, as a Baptist in uh, in London eventually until he fi- until he dies uh, from an outbreak of the plague in 1666.
0: Thank you so much, Andre, for that thorough biographical sketch about the life and significance of Thomas Patient. Regarding our discussion on the book, Doctrine of Baptism, that Patient wrote, where in the midst of all of that historical context does this work fit into? And what would you say was the relevance of that book to the Baptist's who were um, amongst patients, so his contemporaries, how was that work received? Do we have any knowledge of how it was received during that era? And uh, as we transition now into our 21st century context, what would you say would be the relevance to such a work today?
2: That's a great question, Dewey, thank you. And uh, let me, um, well, let me back up a little bit. I forgot to mention in in our survey, uh, a rather, a, a very significant uh, aspect of a patient's career, and that is that he was a, uh, he participated in the drafting of the First London Confession of uh, 1644 and was one of its signatories. So, so, all that to say, he was a, he was very much engaged in matters of doctrine, in matters of uh, clarifying doctrine. So, where does so where does the doctrine of baptism come in well um it was published in 1654 uh he he most likely he most likely wrote this uh after after he was in ireland and the purpose i would say the purpose i would say would be at least twofold one it's. To, it was obviously. It was to give. It was to give Baptists, you know, and what and and those whom we would call particular Baptists in this case, it was to give Baptists a thorough biblical and theological grounding for the doctrine of credo baptism or believer's baptism. That was the first thing. Secondly, it was to vindic—I would say, it was to vindicate the ba- the Baptists, and in this case, a particular Baptist—as not just simply being reformed, but probably the most consistently reformed of other of others who were of others who certainly would have uh, who would have self-identified as uh, as being reformed. And so I would say, so I would say those were the, those were the main, those were the main purposes because we have to remember, even though the church, even though what the church of England was, uh, you know, during Cromwell's uh, protectorate was, was outlawed in a sense. Yet there were still not just, you know, not just those who are part of the uh, church of England as a, as what we would call Episcopalians But there were also Presbyterians and there were Independents. We have to remember who strong who strongly uh, advocated for um, you know for infant for infant baptism as really a sine qua non uh, for the under uh, of Reformed theology, and especially with respect to the doctrine of the covenant of grace, which really hermeneutically undergirds. Uh, reformed theology. And so uh, what uh, it, it becomes very apparent when you when you read through this work, patients concern as somebody who's reformed, as somebody who's a reformed pastor, is trying to establish the Baptist position as being the most consistently reformed as a result of what he would consider to be a much better reading, and apprehension of, uh, of covenant theology, specifically with reference, obviously, to the covenant of grace.
1: Yeah, it's really helpful as well as we have uh, considered a biographical sketch of Thomas Patient. We've talked about the significance of this work and uh, um, the various doctrines associated with the doctrine of baptism and understanding what we think uh, biblical baptism is. but uh, one thing that we're also especially interested to hear about from you is uh, the passion that you have for recovering Baptist history. I think you already alluded to that especially in your uh, introduction of the editing process of this book. You mentioned uh, how you desired to bring Thomas patient and as much as you can his voice into our day. Um, do you have any tips? or advice for recovering Baptistic works or tips about being a well fo- well-informed well church historian, or do you have any other further uh, encouragements or thoughts about ways that we should recover Thomas Patient specifically? Uh, feel free to take this question or this answer to the, these
2: questions wherever you want. Oh, sure. Thank, yeah, thank you, Austin. I appreciate it. Well, certainly... <clears throat> I think, for one, I think, I think to begin with, uh, if we're reco- when we're trying to recover, in this case, something like substantial, uh, theologically uh, rich, uh, Baptistic works, I think we have to ask the question: What's the intent? What's the intention? because the intention is going to determine which among all these different works we choose to um, recover as a matter, as, just as a matter of what we may call resourcement. Uh, so I think that, so I, and I, and, and I say this because I think it's important to distinguish between something strategic and intentional in this regard uh, from that of somebody just simply being a mere uh, antiquarian so uh, and, uh, by antiquarian I mean somebody who's just somebody who's interested in just um, recovering older works for the sake of you know just for, just for the sake of recovering older works you know driven by by a mere antiquarian interest um, it needs to be it needs to be it needs to be intentional it needs to be intentional so, and that is, and that comes down, and it comes down to, it comes down to why. So in this particular case, let me, and again, I'm not going to, uh, this is not the place to go into all the details and, um, and some of the contentious issues facing, uh, that, many Baptist, that many Baptists face in, uh, in, in their various circles, like in the Southern Baptist Convention and all the various uh, controversies of late that have been raging there but for one thing i think there is and i and i've and i've kind of and i've gained and i and i've gathered this just from talking to pastors uh, pastors who are of you know baptist pastors who are, are of reformed conviction and that is that i think there's a crisis in baptist identity right now and i think and again without without trying to be polemical here by any means uh, I think that is plainly evident in much of the controversy that has been occurring in the Southern Baptist Convention, for instance. Just to use that as an example, and not to and and then not to mention that there are other, there are you know there are there are other there are others who may not be Southern Baptists, but there are others who have something of a caricature of what it means to be reformed. And there's also, an, and there's also a narrative out there that uh, maintains that you, that being Baptist and being Reformed are two diametric opposites. And certainly the recovery of such works, especially with, uh, especially, especially something like uh, Patience's Doctrine of Baptism shows the contrary. It shows the exact opposite. So Matt, as a matter, as a matter of fact, I think we could say, and uh, again, understand, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be partisan here by any means, but I think arguably, it were the particular Baptists who, who had, who had, who in the 17th century were very, very seriously theologically oriented. As uh, and and again and and I and you don't have the among the particular Baptists you don't have interestingly the kind of uh, the kind of anti intellectualism that you know some of the you know some of the um, uh, General Baptists would have had now although not although certainly not all but it was it it, it's the anti intellectualism the anti you know the anti scot the anti uh, anti-scholarship things like this were more were somewhat more prevalent among some of the general baptists than among than among than among particular baptists the particular and also the particular baptists wanted to on the one hand they were interested in main you know, they're interested in maintaining their identity as a bit as a as a as a as a biblical as a biblical group all right that's the first thing they're interested in doing but at the same time, there and again, this is where historical context becomes very relevant, and that is they want to make it very clear they're not Anabaptists. They're not out to they you know, they're they're not they're not out they're not out to uh, they're not out to uh, under they're not out to undermine society and all of this. I mean, that's the very thing they're trying to the very thing they're trying to say otherwise. So. So I, so coming back to our question here, I would say, um, <clears throat> I would say that in recovering these kinds of Baptistic works, I think there has to be there has to be some kind of an there has to be an intention behind it. And I would summarize everything that I've said at this point by saying the intention behind it has to be to edify the church end of story in that regard. Um, now what it, so that would be the first, that would be the first piece of advice that I would give broadly speaking. Um, and then second, and then the second piece of advice I would give is that, that anyone who would think of undertaking such a task has to be patient, has to be patient, no pun intended, uh, has to be, uh, you know, they they have to appreciate that uh, it is painstaking, tedious, and careful work. It's great work. It's rewarding work, and I think is a valuable work for the church. But again, it's something that one it, it's something that one has to. It, it's one whose uh, complexity one has to appreciate. But then again. You ha- I believe, just like anything else, it's something to which one has to be called. And then, and then, um, being a well-informed church historian, I would say it may sound a bit simplistic on my part, but I would say at the end of the day, what's important here is that you're that somebody who aspires to be a church historian, whether it be a Baptist church historian specifically, or or work in some other area of church history. You have to be willing. Uh, you have to be willing to read, 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 and be up on the field as much as possible. So I would say, in practical terms, here's what it would mean. I think first of all, it's important to determine what area you're interested in. That's the first thing. You have to determine what area you're interested in because that that would become your area of specialization. And and and. And if you're just starting out that might begin with and with an individual. It could be an it could be an individual or it could be or it could be if it's historical theology it could be a it could be a particular doctrine and read all and coming back to an individual in this case like a Thomas Patient or a Benjamin Keach or someone like that. Read all that you can on that person. And always make sure that you Read the most current literature in terms of monographs, articles, etc uh, that are out there. because that's how you become best informed. And also also uh, don't ever be afraid to read primary sources. Read the thing read, I mean in the case of Thomas Patient, read what Patient himself actually wrote. Uh, read what Keech actually wrote. read what Bunyan uh, actually wrote. And do so in the light of other works that are on these individuals, their context, and and uh, their ideas. Because then you become familiar with it, and then as you become increasingly familiar with it, you're you're able to eventually find um, some area that hasn't been adequately dealt with to which then you can contribute, and always. Remember, I think what distinguishes a church historian from, you know, from some of his or her counterparts uh, who are secular would be this, that you're trying to do two things. You're trying to do academic work, academic scholarship that ultimately edifies the church.
0: Amen. Well, we've been talking with... Andre is all about his work in editing and republishing the doctrine of baptism by Thomas patient. Andre, as we draw our conversation to a close today, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us related to today's conversation related to your work with H and E publishing or anything that you would like to say by way of conclusion?
2: Oh, certainly. Thanks very much, Dewey. Appreciate that. Uh, I would say that, Ancient uh, Publishing is is uh, tr- it has it is rendering a, a tremendously invaluable service to the church. They are always always uh, regularly uh, releasing uh, significant works on on history, theology, especially in those obviously mainly in those areas that uh, are not just simply for they're not just simply for the trained scholars. Uh, they're also for any interested believer who wants to deepen his or her own um, you know, theological understanding, uh, not just for their own edification, but ultimately uh, for the sake of their own service to the church. And so, uh, I would so I would encourage anyone to uh, go on their website and just and just investigate the vast array. Of resources that they have to offer.
0: Well, Andre, it's been a joy to have you on the show today. Uh, We wish you nothing but the best in your future academic and ministry endeavors moving forward. Um, Let me just say what you said by way of concluding our previous question regarding how academic scholarship uh, is ultimately to be oriented for the edification of the church amongst Christian scholars and aspiring Baptist scholars. That's so important. So to our listeners who aspire to the kind of work that Andre is doing and others like him are doing, always remember that your service is ultimately to be oriented for the good of the church and for the glory of God. So Andre, we really appreciate your efforts to that end. Um, To our listeners, we want to encourage you also, if you haven't done so already, Go to h Publishing, purchase this work. You will be tremendously blessed by the um, the thought of Thomas Patient as you've been introduced to that thought today over the course of our conversation. Um, we wish you nothing but the best listener in your efforts to become further acquainted with patient. And until next time, we do want to wish you grace and peace from the Covenant of Podcast. God bless you.